I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We have another great guest for you today. It's Christina Prokopenko. She is a PhD student in wildlife ecology and studies wolf-elk interactions. Christina, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. So um, talk to us a little bit about wildlife ecology and, and specifically what you are working on, this wolf-elk stuff. So as an ecologist, I study the interaction of animals with their environment and each other. So to be more specific, I would say I'm a behavioral ecologist so I, and a quantitative ecologist. So I use statistical and kind of mathematical models to understand, understand wildlife behavior. Um, for the wolf-elk interaction side, I, I just started my PhD in, in the summer. So I'm working in Riding Mountain National Park where I track wolves that are equipped with GPS collars and um, just kind of see what they're killing and how they behave. Um, so that's kind of like the field work portion. But uh, I've worked on other projects that are a little more, uh, that are different. So I've worked on um, elk habitat selection movement in southwestern Alberta for my master's. And to kind of give an example of how diverse you can be when you're an ecologist, I worked on a zooplankton microcosm system in my undergrad. Okay, so that's different. Yeah, yeah. They, you can get... <laughs> you can, it's funny because they, they sound so different. And I mean, as I kind of get like publications, my, it looks like, what is she doing? She's working on elk and she's working on wolves. And then she has this zooplankton thing. But it's what I really like about ecology is that there's, there's a kind of a link between all of them. There, there are these foundational links between almost um, everything that I've done. And, and I find that pretty interesting because people joke that ecologists have physics envy. So we kind of want to find these, <laughs> these simple rules that can describe complex dynamics, um, except I guess the, the particles are or wildlife and then the forces or maybe survival and reproduction and the factors that are influencing it. But we're still looking for those rules that can kind of describe almost every system and trophic level and community. Um, but yeah, so right now I'm just, I'm just studying the, the wolf behavior for my PhD, but that's just, yeah. <laughs> so wait, so, um, I, I want to, you said you follow wolves with GPS trackers and if you're dealing with their interactions with elk, you're not like watching them every minute. How do you, watch the interactions? I mean, how, how do you know when to watch them or what, what to look for? Yeah, so I guess we use almost um, proxies for what an interaction. So I have uh, elk collars as well, so GPS collars in the park. And so that gives us the location of them every hour. And then I have the location of wolves every hour. And when we see uh, what wolves are eating. So if they've killed an elk, then there's also been clearly an interaction, um, a good one for the wolf and a negative one for the elk. And so it's almost, I'm looking at their behavior and how they might be responding to each other. So I'm not getting at that actual fine scale interaction, though I would love to eventually when technology catches up there. But um, so I'm more looking at their behaviors and linking them to it. So maybe elk are using habitat that wolves don't kill successfully in, and maybe wolves are looking to go where uh, more vulnerable elk are. And so that's kind of the, the interaction part is of it. it. Once you, is it when you uh, notice uh, interaction between them, then you actually go physically to that location and then 
to figure out what happened? Yeah, so I actually go to clusters of points. So if you imagine you have a map with all the one-hour relocations for a wolf collar, um, you get clusters, and I run it through an algorithm that identifies them. So if they spent, let's say, 48 hours in a location, then I go and visit it, and then it might be a kill. But I visit um, a bunch of clusters, and some are resting sites, some are scavenges, some are their dens in the spring. So when they have pups, there'll be um, a cluster around their den. And so I visit all of them. So I'm not, so my project, even though it is this kind of like wolf, elk, predator, prey game that I could be looking at, I do collect a lot more data that I think will probably be used for projects beyond just my PhD. So I was telling Lindsay, uh, Lindsay started to take off. Uh, I was chatting with Lindsay right before uh, we started recording, and I was telling her that you know I I studied so much predator prey dynamics in terms of mathematical models. It never occurred to me that it's real. It's real. It comes from literally predator prey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much of uh, what you do once you gather this data uh, goes through mathematical ana- analyses? I guess. Everything will eventually. It's I don't exactly know what models I'll use. Um, there are some habitat selection models, uh, so you can look at where an animal was compared to where it could have been, and then you can kind of model their space use, and then even make like predictive maps of where an animal could go. Or you can use kind of game theory. That's something I'm really interested in. So what makes a wolf decide where to go? And what maybe influences it? Is it um, that there's an elk there or that it's with its friends and it can take down something that's bigger? Or maybe it was alone so it only ate a beaver or something like they do in in the summer. Um, There's also population models, so growth and like logistic regression. And so there's a lot of options in my data could, the data could be used for a lot of them. Um, It's still kind of open, I guess, what I would do specifically. Um, For me, it is focused on that predator-prey game, but I mean, everything in ecology almost has a a model, at least um, testing it or or predicting it or simulating it. And so you can do it in a lot of actual different ways, depending on what your question, your hypotheses are. All right, so I have a question about the data that you get. I mean, how... Obviously, elk and wolves in this example have been around for decades, centuries, millennia, whatever you want to talk about. And the data of watching them, I'm guessing, interacting has been around for a while. But is it changing? Is it more complex now? Does GPS change the way you track data? Does it give you more than just anecdotal? I mean, what? How are things? How have things changed? And and what has been working better or differently? Yeah, so it's actually I'm really lucky to have almost 70 years of data for this park because it was a national park and a lot of projects came out of it. So I have this really kind of good longitudinal picture of what's been going on, um, both in terms of biology, but also do you see the differences in methodology. So kill site investigations only used to really be done um, when I guess they'd snow track them. So they'd see wolf tracks and they'd follow them and then they'd see signs of an encounter and then they would find a kill and then they would determine what species it is and how old it was and um, if it was a male or a female and so it was pretty limited to the winter it would be very hard to find 
wolf tracks on a trail in the summer often, unless it's muddy. Um, so they were limited to it only being seasonal, whereas now the collars enable me to year-round look for clusters and know where they kind of spent a lot of time. So it's given me a better spatial and temporal picture of what's going on. Um, you also said they've been around for a long time for wolves and elk. So in the park, it used to be thought that the wolves were mostly targeting elk and that's where my project actually started and from the past year we've been seeing this diet switch where they're actually focusing on moose a lot and so my research will actually kind of be determining if that's happening across the whole population and why that might be maybe it's due to prey changes or um, something else so I'm coming in in my project at actually an interesting time and it it might also be due to those methods right that now I I see all the clusters and across the park. And so I get a, a different idea of what's actually going on. And how many uh, wolves and elk and moose are being tracked? So I had, I have um, 30 elk GPS collars. I have 20 VHF and the VHF collars I have to fly for um, to look for the radio signal. And then we find them and count who's near them, like their group size. And then for wolves, I had 15 last year, and then we got 15 more collared uh, this past year. Is that what, what kind of sample size is that? That's actually pretty good um, for wildlife ecology for wolves. So to have about 20 or 30 is a pretty good sample size. Um, for my masters, I had 180 elk for over six years, and that was a very large data set for wildlife because you're getting points every hour or two hours, and so you have just this massive amount of relocations by the end that you can kind of use. Are, and are you doing the collaring? Um, personally, no. I, uh, what I did was I flew in a plane, um, and they call it bird dogging. So I looked for wolves. If we found a wolf pack, I would follow the pack, and um, we hire a capture company. And so they do a lot of different captures for wildlife, and that, they're the ones who collar them. I just kind of assist in looking so you said, you, I mean, you have 70 years worth of data. Obviously, it's not all not equal in its complexity. But, but if we talk about climate change and the changing environments and population shifts and, and if it's not elk they're eating, but it's moose and all this, can you delineate what is caused by these things? Or are you just saying this is what's happening? We're not sure why, but it's changing this direction. I mean, that's definitely my hope to figure out. So there have been population changes where um, elk population numbers were higher and then slowly they've switched. So now moose population numbers are higher and it, that could be it alone, or it could be something with the wolves or the habitat that they are in. So yeah, I'm hoping to use environmental and also the prey information that we've had over time to kind of model it. Um, that's that's one of my plans is to kind of figure out what could be causing the change and what could be driving it and, and maybe make predictions about the years to come because it is going to still be studied after me. Right. I, I want to back up a little bit. How did you get interested in this area? Well, I went to the University of Guelph, which is in Ontario, and I was in biomedical sciences because I actually wanted to be a vet and like many people who go to that <laughs> university, actually. Um, so it was a great program. And 
uh, a result of all these people going and taking biology programs is they had a really diverse range of courses and majors. Um, and I took an epidemiology course in biomedical, in my biomedical degree, and I loved it. I love that you could use math to kind of understand what was going on in the population. And then I took a population ecology course. And after that, I was pretty hooked on the whole idea of being able to, to, to model dynamics of animals. And I, I was also very interested in that macro level of, so like the animal scale of their decisions and their behavior. Whereas in, in vet school and in biomed, as I was progressing through the years, I noticed that things were becoming more cellu cellular, which I appreciate, but it was just not my skill set. And so I ended up switching my major to wildlife biology. And it was a professor who noticed how much I liked a wildlife conservation course that suggested I do my undergrad project, which I did with him. And I ended up counting zooplankton for hours in a lab. And that was my first project. And yet it didn't, like it didn't the opposite of macro. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still the, it's still modeling their um, predator prey dynamics of zooplankton is right. what it's, I ended it's, up doing. It's macro look at, at micro things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that hooked me. And then that, and then I went on to my master. So it was kind of that initial epidemiology and population ecology course that really did it for me. So have you been working with elk and moose, I guess, but elk for your master's and now for your PhD, what are some things that, that some of us might not know very much about elk? Are they, are they weird animals? Do they have like weird behaviors? Like what, I, I feel like there's gotta be some weird stories about elk in there. Um, I mean, they look pretty funny when you catch them on a trail camera, <laughs> their eyes go a little buggy cause they can hear the camera clicking. So if there's trail camera photos, some, like they have this really interesting neck. And uh, I don't know, I think they're pretty cute and, and a little weird, um, but they're actually very smart. And so I think uh, if we have social wildlife animals, then you have to have some sort of, not really intelligence, but you need to remember who your friends are and remember where you were. And I think um, slowly as we our models and our technology gets more and more advanced, we realized how advanced animal decisions might actually be to survive instead of that like sometimes some models and theories just have them kind of bumping around and running into a wolf and then a wolf kills it you know and I think there's there's a lot more to that because for my masters um my the work I did for it I found that they avoided roads and they changed their behavior due to roads and they they moved differently when they were near them and they selected different habitat when they were close to them versus if they were crossing them. And so there's a lot of kind of intricacies in what they're doing. It's not just them kind of running on a landscape. And the reason why they might not like roads is because it's a form of human disturbance and then they were hunted in the area. And so they actually could be learning what to do um, with hunters and, and this kind of novel thing that we're introducing to them. And I, I think that kind of um, illustrates that they're, there's more going on up there in that little bug-eyed elk brain. When you're talking about systems and you're talking about formulas that sort of work across systems, would you say that, that you could easily or relatively easily compare, like if you're talking a predator-prey dynamic with wolves and elk or wolves and moose, 
would that be similar to, and I'm going to throw this somewhere else, like lions and gazelles in the oh, Sahara? Yeah. Like, yep. <laughs> they, they are, even though it's completely different species, completely different climates, everything, but the, the formulas and the patterns can be yeah. shared back and forth. I think they can be boiled down to similar things. Of course, there's different interactions, but there's still the idea that if you're a prey species and you're in a group, your chance of being killed is probably diluted. So that's the, but also then you have to compete with your buddies who are protecting you from predators for resources. And so there's that competition dilution trade-off that exists in a lot of prey species across the globe. And there's also for predators. So the wolves that I track, if they're in a large pack, they can take down something bigger, but then they'd also have to share. And so those ideas of trade-offs and those those balances, I think, um, can be applied to a lot of different scenarios, even though they seem so different. That's really cool. I'm just thinking about how you know sharks and their prey would interact in a very similar manner to stuff on the ground. Yeah, I I really like when you you can take maybe a method from something that they did on land and apply it into a marine or an idea that happened and. So a lot of the ideas that I look at for um, social learning, you get from guppies. Uh, so guppies mm. actually, there's a lot of literature where they um, can, ones who know what to do with a predator or so like predator um, wise prey actually can teach or the predator kind of naive prey can learn from them. And then so being in that group can actually give you more than just that kind of dilution uh, of risk, but also can teach you something about what to do when you're in a scenario of risk. And so I think applying those ideas to my system or terrestrial systems would be interesting. So it can actually cross a lot. And that's, that's one of the things that always keeps me kind of excited about, about what I do. You had mentioned uh, trail cameras taking, you know, images of, of the, these wildlife. How, how many trail cameras are out there? In the world or in the park? <laughs> oh, no, in your park. In your oh. park, not in the world. No. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know. A lot. Um, not that many. We're working on probably getting more eventually. Um, right now, they are just on trails, but that itself introduces an inherent bias. Um, so in my master's, there's a few students working on that issue of how to get a good idea of population dynamics and trail cameras. Um, we only have about 20, I think, maybe 30 um, around the park. I have a data question. So if you're used to using tracking data and, and data points, right, GPS-based points and being able to sort of see the dots moving, how do then trail cameras fit into that data? How do you integrate that kind of stuff together? Um, I use it just to get a good idea maybe of pack size. So if I see activity at a site and I see six beds, it could be a wolf who stayed there for days and it's maybe not doing well because there's so many beds and it's alone. Or it could be a really big pack that just kind of stayed there. So um, you can get that intensity of use at sites. And then if I see, okay, there's actually six wolves that ran by on the trail camera and I knew that there was a kill somewhere near that trail, then I'm going to say that it was a larger pack. And it gives you kind of an idea of numbers um, mm -hmm. in a very short area. So also there's there's some kind of problems with trail cameras because you are spatially limited, right? It, does, it doesn't give you the same de detailed information about where they're using space. But if I knew one of my collared wolves was near a trail camera and 
kind of went by it in the past hour, then I can check the photos. So I'm more using it just to kind of supplement. It's context to yeah, what you're looking yeah, at. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people um, and other projects are using it for population abundance or occupancy or intensity of use and stuff like that. And uh, it gets gets more complicated because you are spatially restricted. You're also almost as a person biased about where you put a trail camera because you almost want pictures, but getting no pictures is also valuable information, but you don't want to waste your expensive trail camera on trees all the time or a bird flying by. Mm-hmm. So unless you're a bird oh, yeah. ecologist, then that would <laughs> just not true. be a wasted photo. But um, <laughs> don't mean to mammal bias my discussion of it but of course not (laughs) uh so yeah there it's it's different data um i think we're on an interesting time right now trying to in ecology trying to figure out how we can use it best with with those biases so it's still developing Is, is there some technology that you are waiting to or to develop in order to help make your life a lot easier there's a lot of pr- impressive technology now. What the balance is, is cost uh, for using it. So your sample size versus uh, the quality in, of the information that you're getting. So they have some pretty cool cameras. So there's a few caribou projects that have video cameras on it. So actually for my undergrad, I watched hours of caribou collar camera video. So you see little caribou chins doing stuff. Um, <laughs> just the chin yeah. nothing else yeah and then sometimes the camera's <laughs> bouncing because they're running sometimes you have to decide if they're lying down in snow or if the snow's just really deep because that can happen um, so I did that for a summer and that's really cool data you get a really good idea if I had something like that on the wolves that would be very cool because you could see them encountering their prey and what they do and um, they have audio callers now too and you can hear maybe what vocalizations are happening. And so there's a lot of really interesting technology. I guess what I'm excited about is the point at which it becomes feasible to have a large sample size with those very advanced technologies. And I mean, one day I imagine we'll have like kind of like little Fitbits on all my, all my elk or wolves or something, and we'll know how much activity they had and um, what their heart rate was and, and where they were and have both predator and prey collar to cross places because it'll just be um cost it, it will be able to pay for it or like that so something straight off will be different more practical than say gopros on elks yeah running through the, the park yeah <laughs> yeah they always take <laughs> off the helmets i tell them not to <laughs> i think there's a youtube channel in the works right there <laughs> yeah yeah elk gopro yeah uh no, I, that makes a lot of sense. That. If you've got enough trackers or, or data collecting pro- things that are less intrusive and can talk to each other or, you know, I don't know, if it's close to an – if a wolf is wearing one that's close to an elk that's wearing one, you can see, like, they were near each other with yeah. 10 minutes or they were near – yeah. There are proximity collars. And so um, if you had a camera and a proximity collar and a lot of the population collared, I think you could do really cool things. But at the moment, that would be a whole lot of things attached to one animal. It would, yeah. So it, there's the weight trade-off, so how much you put on an animal. There's also the, just the cost of that collar. And then let's say you lose an animal, so it dies, or you lose the collar because it fails, and that's something that you, I deal with a lot. And then you've now put in all that money to not get any data. Um, so there's still a lot of, of balance 
that you have to kind of strike when you make decisions about your project. Um, I think eventually those will become less terrifying, maybe, <laughs> when you're going <laughs> so, into it. Um, is there something that, that the average non-ecologist, okay, so the, just most non-ecologists, would be surprised with in terms of what you do or or, or how your research works? I mean, I could look at it from afar and be like, that's cool, you look at data points, but is there some sort of inside baseball type thing that, that is exciting or interesting or... or unique to what you're doing? I mean, I get to literally follow in the footsteps of my study animal. And I think that's something really cool. Um, I get to see what the wolves did and, and take samples of those sites. And that's really neat. Um, a lot of people though, assume when you're an ecologist, they don't assume the data side. So that's kind of funny that, that, that's what no. you mentioned. <laughs> well, it's been because we've been talking about yeah. it. I don't know. Yeah. So they think, oh, wow, that's so great that you just get to go outside and then look at things. But I am actually, I go from being outside in really harsh weather conditions and being out for the whole day um, and then going and locking myself in a room with data and my computer. And I don't think people see both sides of it. So it's like, oh, you get mm -hmm. to like hike through a park for a year and a half or two years and but you also have to do a lot of data management and analysis and I don't think they also see that other side of it kind of right anecdotal visual evidence doesn't get you that far right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so it's a lot of work there's a reason why I guess not everyone does it well Christina uh, thank you so much for um talking talking with us about wolves and elk and it's fascinating um I'm really excited to to look at see what happens um so thanks for joining us oh thanks for having me Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. <laughs> <laughs>